Welcome to Aesthetics Mastery, the podcast to help you thrive and raise the bar in your aesthetic practice. I'm Dr. Adam Chong. And I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. And I'm Dr. Sarah Nuttall. Dr. Tim Pierce is a GP, founder and director of Skin Viva and Skin Viva Training. And Dr. Adam Chong is a clinical lecturer at the University of Manchester, a GP, aesthetic doctor and trainer in Skin Viva Training. Dr. Sharon Uppel is a GP and also a doctor at Skin Viva and Skin Viva Training. So, <laughs> Tim, tell us a bit about the, uh, the purpose of this podcast. So I'm really excited about today. This is our uh, first ever podcast on medical aesthetics. And what I'd love to do is to give people a resource that they can listen to when they're driving or when they're exercising that will really give them really valuable ways that they can improve their practice, literally make them safer, more effective injectors and help them to thrive in medical aesthetics. Because it is a tough thing to get, to, get, to get going on when you come from zero to build a business and we're going to help you do it. Fantastic. Thank you. So let's get straight into the show. So before the, the main topic, which today will be blindness and dermal fillers, we're going to do the clinical pearl of the week. So Dr. Tim, would you like to share your pearl of the week with us? So uh, the, the pearl of the week, the idea here is something really little that will give you something to think about, which will just improve your practice a little bit. So we'll try and do one every week. Um, the first one I thought about is about how to reduce pain during an injection Uh, And it's really simple. It's about really stabilizing the skin. And what this does is if the skin is very stable and a little bit taut, when you slide the injection in, when you slide the needle in, the period of time that the needle tip is on the surface of the skin is minimized and the control that you have in that situation is maximized. So it's very controlled. The painful bit is over in a second and then you're under the dermis and it's much less painful. So stabilize the skin very well before each injection and you'll decrease pain for your patients. Nice. I like that. Anything we can do to reduce pain, I think, is a good thing. I totally agree. Um, the other nice aspect of stabilising the skin is that clients get a whole sense of comfort that you've got your hands on them and they just feel secure in your hands as well. I love that. That kind of thing is so important that people do literally feel safer because yeah. you've, you've got their hands on them. That's a good point. Great. So let's get on to the main topic, which is uh, visual loss secondary to filler injections. So um, wh- why do you think this is an important topic why is it a hot topic at the moment to discuss well i think the reason that you chose it adam actually was because it's the most terrifying thing that can happen in aesthetics and uh, as much as we all try and portray to the outside world that we feel totally in control as medical professionals the truth is we're as terrified as as we should be about causing harm to our patients and this is probably the worst thing that you can do with with an injection of dermal filler um, so because it's the worst thing we should abs- we should actually face that fear and do as much as we can to reduce that risk mm-hmm. and then also to take the fear away from us actually explore what we would do in those situations what are we going to do to reduce the risk what are we going to do if it does happen those questions will make you feel safer mm-hmm. they will reduce the risk of blindness uh, and they're going to help everyone get better so very happy to talk about this this because i know it holds a lot of people back and also it's obviously a severe danger for the public absolutely and is this something that is quite um, frequent. So in terms of incidents, is it something we need to worry about? Frequent occurrence? Frequent, definitely not. It's rare. Um, but it's, this is probably quite an interesting point to discuss, which is where do these statistics actually come from? So the number that I've heard uh, most recently, I mean, it used to be for years, people would say there have been 48 cases, and then I'd heard people, people put it up to 100, and now I've heard people say 300 cases in the world. Mm. Now, where are those numbers coming from? They are reported data from the doctor who either dealt with the problem at the end or the doctor who did the procedure. And the scary thing for me is what percentage of those cases are actually reported and published in a place that you can find them. 
and I'd suggest it's a, it's a very small fraction. I think the majority of them will go unreported. So um, a thousand cases worldwide wouldn't surprise me at all. Even three or four, five thousand wouldn't. For me, that doesn't seem unreasonable. That that over a hundred, you know, only one percent of them actually make it into journals for case mm. case reports or get reported to the manufacturer. I just think that it just won't happen as often as it should. I did hear somewhere along my training um, that it was more common in Asia. I don't know if that's is that is that ring true with any of you guys. Um, I, I believe that's really not, it's not because their uh, injecting skills are any less than the injecting skills over here, but it's purely because I think some of the treatments they do tend to be in high risk areas of the face, so there's a lot more work done in areas which have a more direct link to the back of the eye, such as the nose and the forehead. Okay. Is there anything anatomically that's different about the Asian population as well? That was something I thought I'd heard, something about the position of the angular artery. Yeah, um, there, is, there is that element as well. So um, the angular artery in most individuals will sit above the nasolabial fold. So when we are doing filler treatments, we generally tend to be in a safe area, but in those Asian populations, it can sit more lower and within the fold itself. So there's a higher risk of your needle being in the territory when you're injecting that okay. area. There's actually a second possible risk, which is because the nasion is quite small in the Asian population, uh, some, in some cases completely absent on the nose and that's often where you're injecting the highest volumes of filler when you're creating a bridge on the nose there's a possibility that it's, because it's flat I wonder if it might be a little bit more central uh, in certain cases but certainly the volume of filler that you're injecting into the high risk area is m many times higher than I would generally do removing a bump on a, on a Caucasian nose so high yes, volumes um, in, in, a, in a place that's particularly riskier I think that's one of the most important things but likewise the position in the nasal mm -hmm. folds is an interesting difference Okay, so should we talk a little bit about the mechanism? So how does it actually happen? So it's, you're basically injecting a thick gel-like product into an artery and immediately stopping the blood flow. Um, if, the, if that filler goes deeper into the arterial tree and actually into the capillaries, that the smaller vessels that supply the back of the eye, you've basically blocked the entire blood flow of that area and collaterals won't help you either. Similarly in the skin, the most difficult problems to cause, uh, to, most difficult problems to solve are actually when there's enough filler that's actually flooded into the small arterioles and block the collaterals. Um, but those are the, that's the main mechanism. You're either blocking the main artery that supplies a structure, or you're blocking the capillary tree that supplies that structure. And with the capillary tree, is it filler breaking off into lots of smaller different bits too? to block those capillaries. Yeah, I think the smaller the filler, the more chance that you'd be able, it would go further into the small blood <coughs> vessels. It's, in reality, probably isn't getting into capillaries, the tiny capillaries, but it'll be the little arterioles leading onto those um, that would get blocked. And it's as soon as it's beyond the point of a collateral that it becomes really significant because there's no other way around. Okay. In terms of the, the actual blood vessels that we need to worry about, just on a, a practical level, which are the main like, blood vessels that, that we should be... You know, aware of the danger ones. So people tend to focus on the supratrocular artery because that's where the majority of cases. So that's when you're filling frown lines. Um, that underneath that crease is almost always directly underneath the crease is where the artery is. So if you're ever injecting there, depth is very important. But that's the number one. I think something like forty-five percent of the cases of blindness have come from injecting that artery. Um, however. People don't tend to link the nasolabial fold with it, but around 13% of cases of blindness have come from injecting the nasolabial fold. So that if you actually then think about, pretty much everywhere on the face is going to be a potential risk. So we should actually think about it all the time and not just get scared when we're around the eye um, because it can be any blood vessel, really. 
okay. any of the major vessels. Okay. Um, so in terms of signs and symptoms, what, what should be, we be looking out for um, you know, when we're injecting that this may have occurred or about to occur? Um, I've only ever seen an occlusion happen once when I was training and the interesting thing that happened to me was in a lip and the, bl- the blood vessel spasmed so the, the injection went in and the whole of the white lip, the whole of the lower lip went white for a second, probably, th- probably about 10 seconds and then it returned quite quickly and then there was a patch left where there wasn't um, blood flow getting to and that's what we had to highlight. But uh, arterial spasm might be something that you notice. Um, I think probably in a nose you're not going to notice it very easily mm-hmm. unless they have a little bit of erythema already. I think it's unlikely that you'd see that, um, but you might. So I, w- I would just keep an eye on as you're injecting uh, whether whether that you see any changes in the skin colour as you've put the needle in. Okay. I've actually had an experience um, on a training day where I was teaching someone um, non-surgical rhinoplasty and um, a little bit of the, the filler, we were midline and we were where we should be, but it just goes to show even with a negative aspirate, um, there was a change in the colour of the skin. The nose became a more dusky grey colour and it was just very apparent that it didn't have the same blood flow to that area as the surrounding skin. Um, so if you're looking out for the capillary refill and it's sluggish or it's absent, those are all good warning signs that you know there might be an occlusion or at least some compression. Okay. How, how long be- before you saw the skin change colour after the injection? It was pretty instant. It was as soon as we'd um, deposited the filler, removed the needle, and we were seeing um, an instant grey coloration. So within seconds. That's good to know. So that brings up an important point about aspiration, which I guess we, we will discuss a little bit, the ways we can reduce the risk. But um, aspiration in the nose, do you think that's, that's really important then? I think it's imperative, not just in the nose, but everywhere. Mm. If there's anything you can do to minimise the risk, it's definitely worth doing that. Mm. And it doesn't take long to do if you do it on a regular basis it just becomes automatic pilot I can't um, put a needle in and not aspirate it just happens if someone asks me not to it'll still happen because it's so automated in my mind that this is just what I do put a needle in aspirate and then eject yeah I've actually had four uh, positive aspirates myself just from rhinoplastic alone which it gives me some degree of comfort to know that I'm taking those steps because you just don't know whether that was it, one of the main arteries that the needle was, needle tip was lying in. Indeed, it works, isn't it? Because there's a debate, I guess, as, um, amongst aesthetic colleagues about whether aspiration works. Mm. And um, I think when you get that, you just see you see that positive result that that could that could have been a problem had you not done that aspiration. Um, I th- uh, I really like what you said about it. Um, you hinted at it at it being just reducing the risk a little bit each time and I can't remember your exact words but essentially this idea that we should be looking for incremental reductions in, in, in risk rather than saying well does it always work no it doesn't always work so I'll never do it that's, that's a logic that I have seen put across in forums that it's unreliable therefore let's never do it um, seat belts are unreliable too but we all get very used to just like you do with aspirating you feel a bit naked if you haven't put your seatbelt on in your car because we always do it all the time and that's what happens when you aspirate all the time and you aspirate a thousand times before you, before you actually get a, a positive back. And just like you might drive your car for 17,000 miles before your seatbelt does anything, probably more than that, probably 170,000 miles. Mm-hmm. But on that day that you get a positive, you'll be very grateful. And, and that attitude to risk is something that, that I think comes from realising that complications are an inevitability. They, they're not a, something that you'll hopefully get away with. As soon as you accept that all the worst things will eventually happen to you if you keep injecting, what can you do to make it not in one lifetime? You know, if we were all to live for a thousand years, we would eventually blind someone with a non-surgical rhinoplasty. Mm. 
Now, as soon as you accept that, you start to ask yourself, well, how can I make it safer? Even if it's one in a million, I'd like to make it one in two million, one in five million. Um, then you start to come up with new ways of reducing the risk. And every little thing chips away at that risk. And that attitude of, I'm going to always look for new ways of being safer, I think is what sets a great injector apart from everyone else. I think this is even more pertinent considering, I mean, just, just reading that this can happen from nasolabial folds. I have heard of, um, I mean, this is hearsay, so I don't know if it's true, but in the UK that um, there was a lady blinded from lip fillers. So it sounds like it can be any, anywhere in the face, which is done by you know, numerous different practitioners, all the way from beauticians to doctors. So yeah, anything, like you say, anything we can do to reduce that risk is worth doing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, just looking at the ACE, um, ACE group guidance as well, just a few more things about signs and symptoms. They, they've also mentioned here ocular, facial, or headaches um, in terms of pain. Um, other things you can get, nausea, paralysis of the ocular muscles, um, corneal edema. So there's quite a few other things that maybe we should be looking out for. Um, but I'm sure the more common ones are, like, like you say, the pain and, and blanching of the skin. For me, one of the key things is the trajectory that you're on. It's, it's very different when, you, when you're about to cause necrosis. And you often get people who will show you a very dark black bruise five days later without much swelling, and they're worried about it. If you think about what happens with, with necrosis, you, you've got tissue dying, uncontrolled cell death, massive inflammation, it's, it's not a mild thing. It isn't something, if you've blocked an artery, for example, in a lip, and it's not that swollen three days later, I mean, basically it will be, because the tissues are dying. You've got all those cells releasing all their nutrients, which cause a massive inflammatory response. It looks nasty quite quickly. Um, and, and that's part of what, what's happening there, is that, that sense of things developing and getting worse and worse by the hour is a key sign. You want to get someone back. If, if you get a message back from someone an hour after procedure, you need to keep an eye on them another half an hour later to see if it's getting much worse. And yes. similarly, that you know, the longer you leave it, the worse it gets. But have a low threshold for getting people back. This is another about reducing risk. I accept in my practice that I'm going to do home visits two or three times a year, because and most of them will, will be there'll be no point to it. I'll get there and it'll be a bruise, but I can't tell without seeing them. I would rather do a hundred home visits and not have anyone to hire layers than miss the one who ends up losing you know, the ailer of their nostril or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess while we're on the topic of minimising the risk, there is a, there's a few other things that we could maybe discuss there. How do you, Sharon, how do you personally minimise risk when you're injecting? So we've talked about aspiration. Are there any other ways? It's about knowing your anatomy as well. So we all know where key structures are, and obviously there might be a little bit of individual variation, but if you understand where the, the major arteries are, you can make sure you're taking precautions, if you can, to avoid injecting at those sites. And if you can't, then also understanding there's um, not just knowing where the arteries are, but the depths of those arteries as well. Mm-hmm. So you can keep your injection superficial, for example, if you are injecting in a frown line area. Um, and you can also adapt your technique. You can use um, cannulas. Cannulas um, will minimise the risk of um, potentially perforating into a vessel as well. So I think if you, you take all of that into account, each one of those steps will lower your risk. What do you think about needle size 27 versus 30 gauge? Yeah. Which do you think is lower risk? Yeah, so obviously um, if you've got a larger gauge needle, you're going to have less chance of it actually sitting inside the vessel. So um, the, the, the larger the, ve- the opening of the, the needle, the better really for that. Is Same some- with cannulas as well. Yeah, okay. Is there something about a smaller size needle requiring more pressure in, you know, during injection that potentially could increase the, the 
pressure with which filler is going into an artery. I don't know if that I've completely made that up, whether I've heard that along the way. So if you are interarterial with a 30 gauge needle, you could, it's going to require more pressure, which theoretically means that filler could move I would, further. That's a good question. I would have thought it would be offset by the reduction in flow. So, yeah. so the pressure isn't the limiting factor. It doesn't take much pressure to overwhelm the systolic blood pressure. Okay. Um, so although you're putting more pressure on the syringe, the difference, I don't think that difference would be as significant as the fact that you can fit more, the same amount of pressure on a wider gauge needle will put a lot more filler in. Mm. And there's always enough pr pressure to overwhelm the systolic. It really doesn't take much to overwhelm okay. the systolic. So I'm not, the interesting question which I find, find out is what is the pressure at the tip of a needle um, when you're injecting, because if it's if it's over 120 millimeters of mercury, then which I think it probably almost always will be, um, you, it doesn't really matter anymore if, unless you're significantly less. So uh, that would be a question to find out. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's a way of finding out, or if someone's done a study on what the pressure is at the tip of a needle. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I also think following on from that, um, just making sure your injections are nice and slow and steady. It doesn't matter how pro you become or how expert you become. I think if you keep your injections nice and slow and steady you can monitor what's going on in the skin rather than being too bravado and just whopping a whole load of filler into an area in a, a quick um, period of time it might look great um, but it's not a safe way to inject absolutely i think there's something i noticed in myself which is when i was first trained and um, someone said to me when you're when you're uh, when you've got when you're experienced you'll be much faster and for some reason it stuck in my head that i should be faster when i was more experienced and then actually as i got that experience i realized the, the opposite is better, that actually when, I, when we train people on the foundation day, often they're a little bit quicker than they need to be because they think that's a sign of competence. And when I notice myself with injecting, I actually tend to slow down. I've actually got slower in many cases than I used to be. And um, one of the ways to do that is to just be always be in the moment of your injection. The moment you start to think about the clock and you're running a bit late or even about what you're going to do next or that it's lunchtime and you start to unconsciously start it's almost like you're living in the future rather than, than in that moment I think you tend to be a bit quick and I, I've caught myself doing that where I'm thinking I just need to pop this in injection and I'll move on to the next thing and you've got you must be on your guard for that actually lots of other things come from that mindset as well and your patient can pick up if you're more concerned about the clock than that you are about them um, but it's a really good way of staying safe is to actually lose yourself in that moment. It's actually quite a peaceful place to be. I actually quite like those, those moments where you're just, in, you're just thinking about that needle, that position, the result you're getting. It's, it, there's peace in that moment where as soon as you're thinking about the clock, you actually lose that and you get less safe as well. Sure. Tim, I've also noticed that the way you inject the frown lines, you, you tend to compress. Um, is that the supertrochlear artery? Yeah, so this came from taking my own advice, which is how do you keep continuously reduce the risk? And the main way you reduce the risk when injecting the frown line is by being superficial and aspirating. And then I also thought, well, what, what harm would it be if you compressed the artery that we're worried about blocking at the same time? Um, and it's actually it's incredibly easy just to hold the skin and just squeeze a little bit harder. You can often feel the pulse, just compress it until it goes and do your injection. You have to aspirate without being compressing it. Then as you're about to inject, you compress the artery and then, you, and then you basically fill it with that compression. And that should reduce the risk of getting some filler. It would at least make it less likely, even if it's not 100%. Um, and we've actually got a YouTube video on that, which you could probably, well, uh, I don't know if we're sophisticated enough to add it to the show notes yet. Um, but we have a YouTube video, which you can find on Skin Viva Training on how to inject frown lines, which might help you with that. Great. Okay. So 
We've obviously talked about um, a little bit about the anatomy, some of the signs and symptoms. Uh, one of the key ones, which I don't know if we've really hit home, is that obviously immediate loss of vision, I think, is the, the main thing that we worry about. Uh, we talked about some strategies to minimise risk. So what would we actually do if, if we were injecting someone and suddenly they lose their vision? What, what Practically, what would you guys do at that point? I think the key is you need to be um, getting that individual to the right expert in a short window of time because you only have around 60 to 90 minutes to, to salvage vision. So um, based on the area and the locality you work in, you need to know where your um, eye consultants are, which hospital that is, and, and have those contacts so that you are prepared to pick up the phone and make that phone call. So would you say for anyone doing dermal fillers, they should have a, a good awareness of their local hospitals? Absolutely, and particularly I think eye? Department. I think it's essential. Yeah. Okay. One of the things that I worry about is having <coughs> seen patients go to the NHS that the NHS is not equipped for this. So there is a there is a tendency to say, well, there's nothing we can do unless they're trained. Particularly from in an A and E department when you're dealing with an SHO who may even make the wrong not with blindness, but if they, if you had a necrosis somewhere else an impending necrosis, it's really likely that they will diagnose a bruise because. Until you're trained, that's the obvious thing. You've had an injection, it's swollen, and it's a different colour, it's bruising. So I really worry about relying on the, on the NHS. Um, there are treatments you can do, but obviously no one, no one is really trained on a real person to, dis to dissolve filler around the eye. But there are a couple of ways that I've seen discussed. I don't know if you want to talk through those. Yeah, but I think that would be really useful. So um, one of, if you think about what's happening, if you've blocked the supratrochlear and the retinal artery, that those, they go through a little foramen, these, these uh, inf supraorbital foramen, and you can palpate that. So there is a, a school of thought that suggests you could actually place a needle into that foramen with hyalase in it and flood the area and unblock the artery that way. I believe there's one case report, I've at least found one case report with that that's actually been successful, and I think quite often not successful as well. And then the second way of dealing with it. So well, I just thought it would be useful. How do we, anatomically, how do we locate that supratrochlear artery, the, like the notch where it comes out? Is there a landmark that our listeners can, can use? I would, you can, do, you, know, you know a landmark, don't you? <laughs> no, no, I, I do remember reading one, um, but I, I can't remember exactly. I know it's, is it just medial to the mid-pupillary line? And I can't remember just above the brow, but I, I couldn't yeah. say the exact... Yeah, I, I would have just palpated it. I would have just felt yeah. for the notch. I think you can quite easily feel the notch, and actually, I think it's a little bit more tender when you press on these areas yeah. over the, so the surrounding area because there's a vessel there. So, um, and you might even feel the pulsation. And I guess there will be anatomical variation as well. So, Absolutely. relying on that pulse yeah. might be a bit, a bit better. Okay. Um, so, practically speaking, there's there's the possibility of cannulating the supratrochlear artery. Any other? Things that we could do to, you know, in terms of flooding with hyalase, or I've heard of massage, intraocular massage. Um, that's an not intraocular, sorry, ocular massage. Ocular massage. Yes. You don't want to get your finger right inside the eye. <laughs> it, I suppose, increasing the pressure within the eye would more likely drive filler in the other direction, so mm -hmm. it might help. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I've seen discussed is basically injecting um, hyalase behind the eyeball using a technique that's the same as an as a a nerve block that you could use a called again in the I've found the name of intro I would love to help but I don't know what he's referring to here <laughs> yeah. basically it's, it's the it's the same as you would use to block the the nerve of the eye and okay. I can't believe I've forgotten it because I, 
I do know it, but it's just one of those things that slipped off your mind. Anyway, you can inject hyalase behind the eye um, using a technique, which we will link in the show notes. Um, but it's obviously not something that anyone is in aesthetics are actually training to do. Mm-hmm. But it's you basically sliding a needle um, underneath the eyeball, um, up against the, the bone in the skull, so you're actually literally feeling the, the bone as you're going underneath, and then injecting hyalase into that space and hoping that it will penetrate through blood vessels and, uh, and basically dissolve the hyalase without causing and, and actually help vision return. I guess it's beautiful to say that we, we probably wouldn't recommend that to people unless you're specifically trained. Would that be a fair comment to say? You know, if we're talking trying well, to slide a needle underneath the, the orbits. Yeah, so it de- it's one of these situations that it depends on what your other options are. Um, mm. Now, I'm different. My approach is always, what's the balance of risk? You know, am I more likely to make things worse or better? Um, and that's very personal to how you feel. And if you're round the corner from the eye hospital, don't do it. <laughs> if you're working in the Highlands of Scotland and the nearest hospital is, is many days away, I'm not days, if you're going to, you know, hours away, a helicopter ride away, mm. I would probably do it because, it, because I don't think you've got anything to lose yes. um, in that situation. Makes sense. And how long have we got generally until blindness becomes irreversible? Um, you guys know? It's 60 to 90 minutes. Okay. So... Like time is of the essence. Time here, is isn't it? definitely it really is. of the essence, yes. Because by the time you've um, made that referral and got your um, patient there, time's already ticking, isn't it, into that window? Yeah, okay. So there's a few other things um, on the ACE guidance um, about how we can reduce intraocular pressure. Do you know much about eye drops that we can use? Um, I believe there is um, a drop called Timolol that might help reduce some of the intraocular pressure. Um, so a couple of drops into the eye that's been affected, you could, could try that. But again, in a situation where you've got um, blindness, I think the main thing is you're getting the hyalase in and you're getting the expert help because trying to get hold of a drop at that um, point in time is probably low on the priority list. Okay. Um, things like heparin, aspirin, is that anything which is, is recommended, do you know? Um, it is recommended on kind of first principle thinking. Have you got a blood clot there mm-hmm. as well? It's contributing to it. Um, because there's a foreign substance and there's trauma to the blood vessel, so it might have a blood clot in it, and it does make sense. Like many of these things, I don't believe there's any real scientific evidence. There's just, as in no one's done a trial, but it does make sense that it's probably not going to make things worse. Um, We have been wrong on that sort of thing before, but at the moment it is recommended. Okay. I guess a take-home point for our listeners regarding this actual treatment in terms of the amount of Hylae's recommendation, particularly on how much we would use, or would we just say try and flood flood the area, flood the arteries? I think people tend to worry about how much hyalase to use, but um, be generous uh, is the, the key because what, what harm could a little bit of extra hyalase do? I think that's that's the question to ask yourself. Um, yes, you might break down some of the patient's collagen, but they will regenerate that. Um, so the key is you just need to be flooding it. You Use ample volumes. Okay. And I guess we can put a link in the show notes to um, how we make up hyalase in an emergency situation. Yes. Do that. Absolutely. Okay. Um, that way of thinking is so key as well when you're by yourself. Charles just demonstrated again that you, you've got to think what's the worst going to happen if I don't put enough in? What's the worst that can happen if I put a bit too much in? And for me in this case in particular, and for most cases of necrosis, I can't see the harm in adding a little bit more than you needed. Um, although there are always risks involved, the risks seem much smaller than not putting enough in. Okay. When I first learned about the, the risk of blindness when I started training in aesthetics. One of the things I found really hard was how to actually communicate this to my clients. 
Um, I, I, being honest, I still find it hard, um, quite mm. difficult. Um, do, do you have any tips? Because theoretically, we should be saying it for every procedure that we do with fillers, shouldn't we? And, and I must admit, I actually do. Um, I think mm. it's really important we acknowledge that risk is there. And I've never yet had a client turn a procedure down because of that risk. Um, I've had some interesting uh, replies to it. <laughs> I remember one client saying, will it just be one eye that I will go blind in? <laughs> Um, so it's interesting how, um, how clients will rationalise risk, but I think it's really important that um, we, we talk about it, and, and I'm honest about it, that there aren't any hard facts on what the actual um, risk on is, but there are cases out there, and then you follow that up with how you're going to minimise that risk, and that makes that client feel secure in your hands, that you know um, what the anatomy of the area is, and you know techniques that will lower that risk as well. So if you do that, they know you've given them all of that information. And I'll often get them saying to me, I've never heard this before. And automatically that builds trust in your relationship because this doctor has actually sat down and explained things to me. They've not hidden from the risks. They've, they've made, given me a real informed consent. And we are medical. So I think we need to be um, setting the bar high and, and making sure our clients are fully informed. And that's what, what informed consent is about. I guess that's a really brilliant point that, that by actually going that extra step and explaining things to the patient in, in a way that many people are hesitant to because they're, they're, actually, they're afraid that their client is going to be put off or that it's going to scare them and make them feel uncomfortable and actually it paradoxically makes exactly the opposite happen which is they immediately think this person is a real expert, they know about it and they've given me several ways they're going to reduce the risk of it. They sound great, I feel safer weirdly sometimes. Um, but certainly I'm not going to go anywhere else, which is a key outcome for us if you're building a practice, isn't it? So exactly. I don't think you can lose, but you must do what Sharon said and add what are you doing to reduce the risk. Otherwise, you just leave them hanging with uncertainty. Yes, otherwise they get the trainers on run for the hills. <laughs> I think they pick up on whether you're feeling anxious about it or whether you're exuding confidence as well. Aren't you? Absolutely. That's a big part of it, yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, I think that sort of concludes the, the main topic. Um, so now for the consultation hack of the week. Um, so I thought I'd start right at the beginning with this, which is uh, just remember that that person waiting in your waiting room has uh, all sorts of emotions going on other than I just want to have Botox. Some of them feel guilty that they're there because they think they maybe shouldn't be spending the money on their children. Some of them are giddy with excitement. Um, and probably most often it's a little bit of fear. So it's a little bit around that kind of, is this going to hurt? Is the doctor going to be weird? Is he going to make me feel stupid for asking? All of those fears which all humans have. And what you should do right at the beginning of your consultation is have that make a human connection with them first. So don't start by saying, well, what can I help, with you, help you with today? Start by having a conversation with them like you would with any human being. Ask them how their trip was in, what the weather's like. That kind of small talk, plus as soon as possible something positive as well. So I, I will look for things that, I'm, that I genuinely like about them straight away. So it might be, you know, I love your jacket. Or don't give a fake compliment because human beings are very good at spotting fake. Mm -hmm. But if there's something about them that you can connect with, uh, do that first because it makes everything flow from there so much easier because you're no, you're no longer a robot in their eyes who's going to inject them. You're another person who they have a little bit of emotional trust with and everything will flow nicely from that. I think a, a really key thing is to to really listen and concentrate when they're telling you something. So next time they come and see you, if you can ask, you know, how was your mother? She was in hospital last time. Or how was your holiday in Japan? Then if you've remembered that, that actually means a lot to them. Like it, like you were really listening and oh, you're a human being. I think that makes... 
when you get really busy it's incredibly hard to do that mm. so make a note in your clinical notes I've started doing that yeah, yeah. it probably looks a bit strange but I think it's useful okay so that wraps up episode one of Aesthetics Mastery um, please if you could give us some feedback would be really grateful positive and negative we want to know what we can improve on we really want you guys to help us shape this podcast so if you can give us some ideas for topics in future that would be really good um, we'll hopefully get um, this up on iTunes and on the Android podcasts leave us some reviews feedback that would be really great so Dr Sharon Dr Tim thank you very much thank you